folks out there this morning. You were at the front of the stage, worship leading. That was awesome. So there's no greater honor than to honor our Heavenly Father. Jesus came to reveal the Father. I don't know if you know that or not. That was one of the purposes of him coming. There's a lot of statements about why Jesus came. You say he came to save sinners. Absolutely true. 100%. Right? But one of the things that Jesus came to do was to reveal to us the Father. And what does that mean? It's to set us in right understanding of who he is. So we understand who God is. We can understand not just who he is, but who we are in light of that. He, that, we would, that somehow when man, got, when man fell and sin came into the world, everything was lost, including our identity. We lost our knowledge of God. This is how lost we are, right? Man's lost. We're lost in sin. Yet what does it mean to be lost? We are utterly and hopelessly lost. This is how lost we are. Completely clueless about who God is. That's why you have a culture and you have people and a world and a society. Everybody's making up God as it comes along. I think he's like this. No, I think he's like this. So I think he's this way. I don't think there is a God. I think I'm God. I think there's many gods. I think we're our own God. You know? I think I, psychology and, or all of these different things is what, is what we end up having and, and that we're lost. And Jesus came to tell us who the Father is, and he came to tell us and to let us know that the, the, the Father can be known. We were say this with me. I'm created. Come on, you can do better than that. I'm created by love, and I'm created for love. The Bible tells us that God is love. It's the whole purpose. That's who he is. We, were create, we come from love, and we were created for love. God created us from the abundance of his heart to, to be loved by him. We were created to be the recipients of all of heaven's goodness in the context of family. You're created to be the recipient of goodness. The Bible literally says that we're vessels. So a cup has nothing of itself. Is this true? You can put a cup on the counter, but there's, the cup has no function other than what it can contain. We are nothing in and of ourselves. We are substance only by what we can contain. And we're created to carry the Holy Spirit. And we're created to, be the, to carry the substance of heaven. And mankind was created to be recipients. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The Bible tells us that we're vessels. We're the pots. The pot, the Bible tells us in, 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 uh, in Jeremiah that the potter, or Isaiah, I'm blanking out here. That the, the potter can, it's Jeremiah, can the potter say to the, can, can the clay say to the potter, why have you made this way? Again, it's the image of a potter. When Jesus died, they took the money that Judas was paid and purchased what? The potter's field. And what was in the potter's field was all the broken shards of clay. We were created to be vessels. We are containers. Man is never sufficient of, in and of himself. We're just not. Christianity gets a lot of criticism because it's all oh, you Christians are brainwashed or you Christians are, you know, you, you're just filled. You, you guys just follow these beliefs. Everybody follows beliefs. You don't just believe in nothing. It's impossible. You're going to believe in something or someone. We just choose as Christians, we choose to align with the one who created us and to understand our creation from the perspective of, what the, of who the Christian is. We have Rold back here on the board. I'm going to totally throw him out here. And, and he's helping us with the sound. You know, he's going to hopefully be our new sound guy. And he asked me what the soundboard is. I send him the sound. He reads the whole manual. I'm like, you nerd. You know, anyway, I'm like, it, the <laughs> and Sherry's like, I love that. He reads the whole manual. He reads the manual on the thing. You know, why? Because he's not going to go back there and make it up as he goes along. He's going to go back there to the soundboard and go, hmm, well, I think it should be like this or I think it should be like that. No, he's like, why don't I figure out, who the, why don't I figure out how this thing's supposed to work from the perspective of the one who made the board? Why don't I understand why this is where it is or what the purpose of these things are, not from the perspective of what I think it should be, but let me understand it from the perspective of the people who made it. A big difference, Right? We need to understand life. We need to understand our purpose. We need to understand creation and everything from the want, from the light or the perspective of the one who created it. True. So we're created, and this is what, we're created to be recipients of God's goodness. We were created to be just the recipient of love, God's goodness to you. He made you to love you. That's the whole point. He made, that's the whole point. And here we're going to see a story of two sons in the book of Luke, in, book of, uh, Luke in chapter 15. Very famous story. I love this story. 
I've prayed about this. I've, I've always meditated on, of, of, on this one particular story of the prodigal sons. And this story is kind of taught like in one angle a lot of times. It's always taught about the prodigal son and the wasteful son and don't be a wasteful son. We need to pull it apart because it look, there's a lot more to it than that. In Luke chapter 15, verse 11, it says, a certain man had two sons. Jesus is telling the people what the kingdom of God is like. The whole context of Jesus' teaching, the kingdom is like this, the kingdom is like this. Then he tells them about somebody who lost a coin. Then he tells them about a shepherd who lost a sheep. And he's relating it all to the purpose of why he has come. And in this story, one of the, one of the missing elements in this story is the revelation of the father. We think it's all about the prodigal son. It's not about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal son, the older son, and who the father is in the context of the story. It's a completely missed element because everybody just wants to focus on the prodigal son. Don't be a prodigal. Don't be wasteful. <laughs> so the certain man had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So here we have a father who has two sons. And you want to know what this son did, right? This is the prodigal talking. You know what he did, right? He knew he had an inheritance, and he knew it belonged to him, and he asked for it. You understand that? He, did, he didn't have the, he just, his framework wasn't right, his thinking wasn't right, his actions weren't right, but what was right is he knew he had an inheritance, and he knew what my father has belongs to me, and he knew that my father is wealthy, my father is generous, and I am apportioned to all of this because of the position that I hold as his son. He knew that. The older son, you don't see any context of that. And it says, so the father divided to them his livelihood. So the, the younger son goes to the father and says, divide the inheritance now. And so the father divides the inheritance and he gives portion to, he gives a rightful portion to the younger son and the older son got it too. So it tells us that he gave the portions to both of them. And not many days after that, the younger one's like, okay, oons, 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 South Beach is calling, oons, oons, right? So he takes everything that he has, the younger son gathers everything, journeys to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with wasteful living. That's what the word prodigal means, wasteful, okay? He divides everything to them. The younger one spends it all on himself. So what does the younger one do right? He knows he has an inheritance, and he knows it belongs to him. And he asks, he asks for what is rightfully his. What he does wrong is he thinks it's all about himself. He thinks everything is about me. He understood the context of relationship. He understood the context of, of inheritance. But he didn't understand the point of view that it wasn't about him. And so he thinks everything's about me. And so he goes and he spends it all on himself. And the Bible says within a period of time, after he, after he had wasted everything, he finds himself broke. All of his friends had abandoned him. Right? Good time, Charlie. You got lots of friends when you got a lot of money, right? Oh, friends are coming out of the woodwork. When you don't have anything, everybody leaves. And so all of his fair-weather friends left him, and there he is standing there with nothing. And the Bible says he hired himself to a servant of the land. So he yields himself into a position that is beneath him. And he's serving the servant of the land. And the servant of the land is, he puts him in this diminished place. He's, selling, he's feeding pigs, the scripture says. He ends up feeding swine, feeding pigs, which to a Jew was so far beneath them. Most, most lowest thing you could do. Swine were unclean. And not only was he feeding these swine in relationship to the uncleanness of, of, of his upbringing, so he's doing something that was not in aligned with the way that he was raised. He was actually living with them. And he wanted to eat the pig food, but the owner wouldn't even give him the pig food. And he says to himself, the, here's, here's one of the things, this is important. The Bible says, say this with me, he came to himself. Right. When he came to himself... So there's a lot of times when we're doing stupid things and we're living lives and we don't understand a lot of things. People can come to you time and time again. Jesus himself can come to you. But change only happens when you come to you. I don't know if you're aware of that. Jesus can come to you, but that doesn't bring change. Change only happens when you come to you. When you are sick and tired of being sick and tired or you're fed up or you come to the conclusion that this isn't working and you have a conversation with you. That's the only time anything changes. 
Your mother's not going to change you. Your father's not going to change you. The pastor's not going to change you. Holy Spirit's not going to change you. And Jesus himself isn't going to change you. Some people, like we have people all the time, the Bible says the Spirit of God is laboring. It's all he's doing. He's working. I will not always, my spirit will not always strive with man. So what does that mean? The Holy Spirit is working with people, trying to get people to reason. He's working with Christians even now. He's working with the unbelievers, trying to bring them to Christ. He's working with the believer, trying to bring them into destiny. How's he doing? His success rates is quite low. And not because he's not capable. His success rate's low is because people don't want it. It's the only time change happens is when you agree with what's being said to you. When you come to you. <laughs> the Bible says when he came to himself, he had an epiphany and said, hold on a second. This is not the way I was raised. This is not the context that I've been given. This is not my inheritance. This is not what was spoken over my life. He says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I will be as your servant. He came to himself. He said, wait a second. How many of my father's hired people have houses, clothes, and food to spare? Okay, maybe I've forfeited my right as a son, or my, and I've, give, I've wasted all my inheritance, but at least I can, get my, can convince my dad to bring me back as a hired servant. He came to himself. You understand that? It's very important. We have to come to ourselves sometimes. You have to come to yourself and say, am I satisfied with where my life is? Well, I'm just waiting on the Lord to do it. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. I wear watches all the time. Do you know why? Because I want to be consciously aware of time. Time is a commodity, and time is precious, and time is not something that needs to be wasted. Not. And people go, well, I'm waiting for the Lord to do it. The Lord is waiting on you to come to yourself. Is this, who you, is this who you accept yourself as being? Is this the life that you accept yourself to have? Does this align with what he's told you? Does this align with his word? Does this align with prophetic calling? Does this align with anything? We accept things because we're not willing to come to ourselves. And when you come to yourself, you have to make significant changes. Because the way that you're doing it isn't working. If what you were doing was working, you wouldn't need to come to yourself. You have to change things, and change is very difficult. And as humans, that's the problem. This guy had to get sick and tired of being sick and tired. He had to reach his lowest point. He was out of money long ago. He was out of resources long ago. He worked for this hired guy long ago, and now it's only when he's living with the pigs. That, that it, he, it, how low do you have to go? But you know what you need to know? The hope is, is that no matter how low you go, if you're a believer, you can come to yourself. And if you're not a believer, you can still come to yourself and go, wait a second, I think God is merciful. I believe God is merciful. The Syrophoenician woman, you hear me tell the story. There's a, such a dynamic in that, the way that that woman came to Jesus. There's such a dynamic in her perspective. She came to him, and he said, I have no covenant with you, woman. Why do you come to me? She said, my daughter's fever, and she's, she's sick, and she's a Syrophoenician. In the context of Jewish culture, what the Bible is telling you, that woman is an utter outcast. She's an outcast by birth, and she's an outcast by her belief. She was a pagan of the highest order. She was a Phoenician. They practiced child sacrifice openly, right? So they were very into the dark arts, and they celebrated black magic and witchcraft and all kinds of things. That was what the Phoenicians did. And she was a Syrophoenician, which means she was an inbred she wasn't even fully Phoenician. And so she, she, by all Jewish standards, by all religious standards, she was completely unaccepted. And she comes to Jesus, and Jesus tells her that. He says, who are you? I have no covenant with you. You get the rain. I give rain upon the just and the unjust. I'm not obligated to give you healing. Healing is the children's bread, the Bible says. You're asking me to take the bread of my, my sons and daughters and give it to you. Why should I do that? And she said, because I'm a dog, I understand that I'm not in covenant with you. But I believe that you are merciful. And at the, my, even though I'm a dog, I'm at the feet of a master who is generous, who is kind, and who is merciful. She was not willing. She came to herself and said, there's no hope in everything that I'm doing, but there's hope with him. And she came, that's an incredibly humbling experience. She had to come to herself and she had to humble him. And Jesus humbled her a little more, didn't he? He called her a dog. You say, how dare Jesus call somebody a dog? Fairy Jesus would never call anybody a dog. He looked right at her and said, you're a dog. 
Just like he told the religious leaders, you're a pile of snakes. You're serpents. You're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. If you don't think Jesus is going to confront you on your arrogance, you don't know who he is. If you don't think Jesus is not going to confront you on your false beliefs, you don't know who he is. He's going to offend you. Not because he wants to harm you. He's going to offend you because you are misaligned with who he is and what he wants for you. He's going to tell you straight up. So I was just reading this article, and it's talking about judgments, and, and like everything in our society is expecting, we expect judgments. We expect the judgment of right and wrong within our culture. And all judgments are accepted unless it's a judgment that comes from God. And if God gives a judgment, then somehow in our mindset, in our culture, we think that it's unloving. If God said that's wrong, oh, that's not loving. That's not loving. Yet we accept judgments of right and wrong in every level of society, except the American society today will not accept the judgment of God. We will not. And when guys say judgment, God is deeming right, wrong. He's parsing it out. Righteousness, unrighteousness. And we're willing to accept that from any other context except if it comes from him. And you know what, you know what we're actually doing? We're fulfilling Psalm 2. You will not rule over me. <laughs> Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. Why do the nations rage and plot vain things? And take counsel together and try to figure out ways in which they will not allow the Lord to rule them. That's what it tells you. Bible's saying it. Why are the nations plotting vanity? Why are people coming together and trying to conspire in all of these ways for the sole purpose of how can we figure out how to not allow the Lord to rule? <laughs> we'll create a government, and we'll establish our own system of righteousness, and we'll all bow to the gods and the idols of men. Well, that didn't work out well for Nebuchadnezzar, right? 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. He makes a God of himself, says, everybody bow down to me. <laughs> but he loves you. <laughs> Where does love, what does God confront? Do you know what God confronts? God confronts everything that interferes with the love relationship. That's what he confronts. God's not arbitrarily up there just judging everything whimsically. I think that's wrong. I think that's right. I think that's wrong. I think that's right. Let's see, what's my mood today? My mood is, I don't know. I'm feeling like that was right yesterday, but it's going to be wrong today. That's not who he is. What God, what God deems unjust and unright is everything that interferes with the relationship of love. And love, again, is not touchy-feely, pseudo-emotional love. The bio, everything that interferes with your highest good, he's opposed to it. That's what love is. So God's love is the highest good. And so what does God oppose in your life? Everything that is contradictory or conflicts with your highest good. That's what he opposes. He's not just opposing things for the sake of opposing things and saying, oh, I think this is wrong because I just think it's wrong. He looks at you and says, you're not designed for that. That's not, that is something that interferes with the relationship between you and me. I'm in opposition to it. I'm a jealous God. He's not jealous of you. He's jealous for you. He created you for himself. He's not interested in sharing you. Ladies, anybody here interested if you're married sharing your husband? No, I just want to know. Women understand this dynamic really well, right? <laughs> I just read an article about a baseball player. I don't know. I read random things. I read an article about a baseball player who's a beautiful wife, but he was caught cheating on her. And the wife came across him with a mistress, and she, like, 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 dove across the table and, like, attacked the woman, right? And you think, oh, that would never happen. Yeah, ladies, let your, you find your husband with someone else, and you see if you're okay with that. No, I'm just saying. And, and if we think that that's okay from our context, which it is, does that right, does that wife have a right to be jealous for the affections of her husband? 100% she does, because she's given herself fully into a relationship, and if that's the case from a woman's perspective, how much more is that the case from God's perspective who has given himself fully for you? That he does not want to share you with anyone. Not because he, he wants to keep you all for himself, but because you belong to him. You are, you are, he, he is the recipient of your affections. He doesn't want to share those affections with other people and other things because he is your highest good. You were created by love and you were created for love. He said, I'll go to my father. And I'll tell him, make me like one of your servants. And so after he came to himself and realized, he goes to his father. Luke 15, 20 says, but while he was still a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion on him, 
And everybody said, ran. Ran to him. His father went and met him. He saw the effort, and he went to him. Some of you, it just requires a little bit of effort. Just requires a little bit of effort. Would you make the effort? Could you get up? Could you move? Could you step towards your destiny? Could you step towards your purpose? Could you step towards your identity, your calling? Could you step towards it? (laughs) Now I'm waiting for Jesus. He's going to come down and piggyback me and carry me. You're going to be waiting a long time, man. (laughs) A long time. And he said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father stopped him right there. That wasn't the whole speech, was it? The son had already rehearsed the speech. I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm no longer to be called your son. I'll be hired out as your servant. The father took the, say this with me. He accepted the repentance, but he would not accept the diminished identity. He would not accept his son to be called anything less than his son. His son was not his son based upon his behavior. His son was his son based upon the pronouncement of the father. And he says, clothe him in this right status. So the idea here is is repentance is expected, ladies and gentlemen, and repentance is accepted. The father, there's a lot of times we've sinned, and we know we've sinned, and we've violated our conscience, and we know we've done it wrong against the Lord. The Lord expects you to repent. He expects you to acknowledge the wrong and to admit it and quit it or take his power and go a different way. That's what he expects. He expects repentance, and he accepts repentance. But he will not accept a diminished identity. I'm such a loser. I'm so pathetic. I keep doing this all the time. You know, that's, if you were here, I don't know which service I shared it in, but it's just been a kind of a common meditation for me the last few weeks. Sarah and I were talking, and I said, you know, that's occurred to me in my musings with the Lord is that he has never one time answered my question of why me. Every time I've gone to the Lord, and when, all of them, when, it, when, when the inevitable calamities of life come upon us all, such have trouble in this life, we have trouble. In this world, we will have trouble. I've never one time when I've gone to the Lord and went, why me? Why is this happening to me? Anybody prayed that prayer? Anybody want to admit that they've never prayed that prayer? Anybody, any, you know, all right, you know, we've all prayed, we've all prayed that prayer. And you've never gotten an answer to it. Not once. Pastors preach sermons on that. I don't know if you're aware of that. They preach sermons on why God doesn't answer. God does not answer the question of why. We just must accept the answer why. When we ask God why, oh, he doesn't have, he's not obligated to answer why. Oh, he obligates himself. That, that is in direct conflict with his relationship status with us. God answers, and he promises to answer, but he will not answer that question because it's rooted in diminished identity. Why me says I'm a victim. That's what it says. God does not recognize you as a victim. So when you come to the Lord and go, why me, he's looking at you going, who are you? Who are you? He doesn't recognize you in a diminished posture ever, ever. So when you're saying, why me? God never recognizes his sons and daughters as victims. You are a victor now and forever, more than a conqueror. So when situations are coming to you, I guarantee you, you'll get an answer. So some of you should get a pen and paper and write this down because problems are going to come to you and you're going to see a big difference in the way the Lord speaks to you. When you need to draw a line right through, I will no longer, never will I again ask the question, why me? It's a futile question because he will not answer it. He will not. But if you ask him, Lord, who are you showing yourself to be to me in this circumstance? He'll answer that. What are you revealing to me about your nature in this circumstance? He'll answer that. But he will never ask, answer you the question why. He will never. Why me? That is never going to be answered. Why me? Because he's going to go, because you're a pathetic loser, Kevin. That's why. You know, because I'm incapable of providing for you. That's why. So when you're going through a situation and you go, Lord, who are you trying to show me in this situation? He's going to answer you. And he's going to say, I'm showing you that I'm more than enough. I'm showing you that I'm all sufficient. I'm showing you that just in spite of everything that's going on around you, I will sustain you. He's going to answer you in those questions, but he will never ask why me. So you may as well get over the victim mentality, Christian. And you may as well stop being pathetic and acting pathetic. Because the only person you're ministering to is yourself. Nobody, you're not ministering to anybody else, and you're really not even helping yourself. 
Jesus doesn't, he does not relate to us out of pity. He does not. You need to stand up on your feet. That's exactly what happened to the son. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know what the father says? Put him on his feet. That's exactly what happens in this story. He doesn't say, leave him there for a while. No, I want more of this. Yeah, come on. I want a little bit more. Give me a little bit more. The first thing he says is he says, clothe him. Put a robe on him and clothe him in his right standing. Put a ring on him and let him understand the rightful authority that he has and put shoes on his feet and stand him up. Stand him up. You think Jesus gets any glory with you groveling on the floor? He gets no glory in that. I mean, you see it all through Scripture, man, all through the Bible. God is always saying, get up. Get up. Stop pitying yourself. Stop crying. Stop feeling sorry for you. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. The Calvary's not coming. You have to take your rightful position, and you have to understand your authority, and you have to draw from your inheritance. It's not happening any other way. Heaven's not moved by pity, Christian. It's not. It's moved by faith. Faith is the currency of heaven, not human empathy, not sympathy. Oh, doesn't God know? Doesn't God see? Why doesn't he care? And you know what he's saying? Don't you know? Don't you understand? Don't you know not only who I am? Don't you understand who you are? The church is, is, we've taught a pseudo gospel for a long time now. And it's time we wake up to the fact that this isn't working. If the gospel that we're proclaiming is not manifesting the truth that's spoken, then the, then the problem lies in the gospel that we're proclaiming. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about, a, well, we just need to ask the Lord. We just need to beg God. Oh, we're just wretched sinners. You know, I mean, the, the, this understanding of our identity is completely skewed. And it's completely off. It's completely wrong. You don't see it in the scripture. You have to look for it. Do you know why? Because God will let the world, he'll let his people just swim in the morass of empathy and self-pity. There's nothing wrong with empathy if it's spirit-born. But he will let us swim in the morass until, and he will wait for those who will begin to discover their identity. Why do you think Romans is saying exactly that? All of creation is growing for the what? For the groaning, for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Creation's groaning. And you know how, this is how the church pacifies that. That is a present now word. That's not a future reality. That's right now. Well, when Jesus returns, we're all going to be revealed to be the sons and daughters of God, and creation will stop groaning. Who told you that? That theology, again, is based in, is based in nonsense. It's right now. What it's saying is creation is groaning for the, for the sons and daughters who will finally understand who they really are, take their rightful place, and begin to live towards their destiny. You're not a victim, Christian. Not now, not ever. I don't care what life's done to you. Get in, the, get in line. You don't know what life's done to me. You don't know what life's done to me. Get in line. You don't know the troubles I have. You don't know the troubles I have. You don't know the troubles I've seen. You don't know the troubles I've seen. You know, we could, all, we could all write chapters of our lives, but that is not what God identifies, and that's not even what he's focusing on with our lives. He's not looking at that. He's looking at who you are right now when you begin to operate towards your overcoming power. Prodigal son, I'm not worthy. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. We have altar calls where we just lament up and down in churches, everybody weeping at the altar. Oh, we're so pathetic. We're so pathetic. We are just losers, God. Have mercy on us. Do you think that prayer's answered? That prayer's, I've never seen that prayer answered. I've never seen it answered. We're losers. We're pathetic. Have mercy on us. Oh, we're so pitiful, you pathetic people. If you want to get technical, in the New Testament, we're not called to an altar. We're called to a throne. We're not called to bow. We're called to stand on our feet and come before our Father. That's what we're called to be. There's no mention of the altar in the New Testament. We come before a throne. Come boldly before the what? The throne of grace. The price has been paid. The blood has been shed. The altar is no more. There's no more need for sacrifice. There's no more need for self-pity. And oh God, poor me. What a wretched loser I am. High karate yourself. Learn who you are, Christian, and stop bathing in it. But it feels good. Yeah, I know it feels good. Then wallow in your pity. Wallow in it. Pity parties. Jesus doesn't attend pity parties. Well, we send out the invitation. Jesus, come to my pity party. He's not come once. I've never seen Jesus at a pity party. 
Never. But I sent him a really colorful uh, Instagram and a, a really colorful, you know, come to my pity party, Jesus. He doesn't come. He, doesn't, he loves parties, but he doesn't like pity parties. Just a thought. Here you have a prodigal wallowing and crawling on the ground, and the father says, put him on his feet. Do you understand that? Has life run you over like a truck? Like this dude? Are you living with the pigs? Then go to your father's house, let him clothe you, let him put a ring on your finger, shoes on your feet, and stand in your rightful place. Stop being pathetic and stand up as a daughter, stand up as a son, and assume who you are and stop living, start living from that identity and stop fooling yourself into thinking anybody cares about anything else. Heaven doesn't care about anything else except your daughtership and your sonship. That's the only way he looks at you. Grace is in the eye of the Lord. Spiritual power, moving in love, is grace. So what God is looking at is where the power is. And when he looks at you, he sees son and daughter. He never sees victim. So you want power? Then stand as God sees you as a son and daughter. You're going to be amazed. Some of you, your worlds will transform. Not everything's going to go perfect, but something's going to shift. And you're not going to accept things that you used to accept. Things are going to change if you can just understand it from that point of view. And here's the, again, I'll just give you the gospel teachings that, that the church does. I've been to Bible school. I listen to a lot of these teachers. I know what's taught in these hierarchical places. I know how they feed the, the, the pastors that they're training. And they're feeding them with nonsense. That's why the church is being taught nonsense. Because, and you know what happens? I'll tell you what happens. The pastors that are being trained never really question the teaching from the context of the Scripture. They don't really question it. They just accept it wholesale because it's easier. And, hey, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, I'm going to a Presbyterian seminary, and I want a job in a Presbyterian church, so I don't think I should challenge anything that these Presbyterian seminarians are teaching me. We shouldn't challenge it. We should just accept it. It's, it's, it's just crazy. It's crazy. God does, and we, we, we teach this, this understanding you know, well, what, what happens when pa- people ask why all the time, Pastor? Why doesn't God answer? Well, God is a mysterious God. Mysterious. Who, who can know the ways of the Lord? I, I don't come from that context. You know where I come from? Can I do this thing that I'm about to do without telling Abraham? I come from the context of Amos. God does nothing but by first telling his prophets. I'm in covenant relationship. I expect him to speak to me. I expect him to. I don't accept why. When, God, when I ask why, and he's not answering, why aren't you answering? Because you're asking the wrong question, Kevin. It's not that I'm not willing to answer you. I'm not going to see you as a victim. That's why. Oh, but you know, oh, oh, but you know. We, we just, we, we, we like one, we want awards for our, 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 our weakness, I mean, I'm serious. It's like, it's like we want to be rewarded for weakness and patheticness. God gets no glory in your patheticness, Christian, ever. Heaven isn't going to work in your life. I'm telling you right now. I'm just telling you how it works. I have people all the time, they want to debate it with me. I was debating it yesterday with somebody. I'm like, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Well, I, I'm like, okay. You can go waste five years of your life trying to tell me that that's going to work, but I know for experience and from a fact that what you're telling me is not going to work. I know, because God, heaven does not operate from the context that you're speaking. It doesn't operate that way. The Father does not see nor does he function in the line that you're talking about. He just doesn't. How many believes this gospel works? Do you believe it? How many believes that the Bible is alive? How many believes that the power of God is present and now? It's not in the sweet by and by or in the, in, the, in, the, in the centuries that are long past. The presence of God is now and present. And if we are not manifesting what he says is can, be, can be, then there's a problem with us. If God's not asking me, if God's not answering me when I'm going, why me? Oh, God, why, why does this keep happening to me? Oh. And if he's not answering me, for that, when he's promised to answer, I don't accept no for an answer. You see? That's the difference. Well, you just need to accept the sovereignty of God, brother, and the mysteriousness of, the, of, of God. I don't know God that way. I don't know. I know him as father. I know him as up close and personal. That's what I know him as. 
And I know that when I don't have an answer, it's because I'm either asking wrong or I don't have the right information. I'm not built up enough to receive the answer that he's wanting to give me. He's going to speak to me about calculus, and I don't have remedial math. But I keep asking him a question about calculus, and he's going, Kevin, I'll answer you on calculus, but can we get 1 plus 1 equals 2 right? If you can't get 1 plus 1 equals 2, I can't teach you the answer that you're asking me for. And so what we have to do is when we ask God and he points you to something that seems remedial, or some, some Christians, I mean, they've been saved for 10 years, and they still can't attend church regularly. Really? And you've been, you know, and they've pretty much given up on believing God for anything because they know God, God, the Lord's like going, you want me to give you that? I'll give you destiny. But can we go down to preschool? Can you actually show up? You're not getting out of preschool if you don't have an attendance record. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you don't go to school, you don't get an attendance record. If you don't show proficiency in the things that you're being taught, you don't graduate. But somehow we don't think that applies to the church. Somehow as Christians, we don't think that applies to our lives. We think that God's just going to do it like on a surrogate level. He doesn't work like that. He doesn't work like that. So you ask him for big things. I tell you, ask God for the moon. But then go down to the classes that he's pointing you to. Take the steps, build the knowledge, and you'll be amazed that if you'll build the knowledge, what he'll tell you. I have many things to tell you, Jesus told the disciples. But right now, you can't bear it. You don't have the capacity to understand what I really want to tell you. He wants to tell you. Same thing Nicodemus. Nicodemus wasn't even a guy that Jesus wanted to tell him. Jesus looked at Nicodemus, and he expected him to know. Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know? I mean, that's like, I mean, Jesus was probably beside himself. You have got to be kidding me. You are teaching my people, and you don't understand these fundamental truths? That's, that's the church today. We have pastors that are up there, you know, woo, you know. All of it's good. Listen, all of it's good and all of it benefits. All of it. It's like pizza. Even if it's bad or a little stale, it's still good, right? You know, it's still good. Even if the just crust is a little chewy, you're still getting that pepperoni cheese and tomato t- flavor. I mean, yeah, crust is chewy, but, you know. So even, even if it's bad, even the, the gospel on its worst day is still beneficial, that, that just depends on if you're willing to settle for measure or if you're ready, willing to, to push for fullness. I've just never been a person who wants to settle for measure. That's just not the way I'm made. I'm not wired like that. Lots of people are. They're okay with stale pizza. How old's yours? About a week? <laughs> Pizza's a pretty enduring food, isn't it, man? I mean, you, could, you, you, you smell it. Yeah, I can still eat that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I just, I, I, why, why do I want something a week old when, it's, when I can have it fresh and I can have it when I can have, why, why do I want to measure when he's promised me fullness? But you must fight for it. The kingdom suffers violence. You must violently take it. But you have to want it. It doesn't come easy, right? right? I want to be, what was I? I was a size 30. You, you wouldn't notice. But when I got married, I was a size 30, right? I had a mullet, business in the front, party in the back, you know. True. Now, I don't want to be a 30, but I'd like to be like a 32 or a 34. But I'm not getting there tomorrow. Can I get a witness? It's not happening tomorrow. You have to work. You have to press towards what you want. Is anybody diet by default? You're like, I want to lose 50 pounds. And then we just look at a picture and go, yep, there I am, and you're done. You have to work for it. it we wish, man. <laughs> Invent that program, right? We have to work for it. We, we, you sacrifice for it. it, it you, you give up things that you don't want. You give up what you don't want to give up. You, if you want to be someone that you're not, you want to change the constitution of your body, you have to literally change your appetite. Do you know that? You want spiritual power? It's yours. But you have to change your appetite. You want a spiritual constitution, and you want to know destiny, and if you're around this church, I have people go, well, I've never even really heard that I had a destiny. I just was always taught that I'm supposed to be. I mean, I have, I have Christians that tell me this. I'm like, who's teaching you? I mean, you don't want to ask me that question if you're from another church. That's not the question you want to ask me, because you know what I'm going to look at you? I'm going to go, what church you go to? Or I'm going to say some form of, who's teaching you? Or I'll say, who told you that? <laughs> because it's wrong. It's wrong. You were created for destiny, Christian. Your being itself is crying for it. I just know I was born for a purpose. Duh, because you were. 
because you were. And until you hunger for that and want that, you have to change. Most of us, in order to get and become who God wants us to, there has to be a complete and total reconstitution of our lives. And the truth be known, like I'm talking, I'll be generous, 3% of all Christians. I'll give you 8% or 9% are aware that there's destiny. Very few are actually even aware of destiny. You'd be shocked. So let's say 10% are aware of destiny. 7% of that 10% actually want it. 3% of that 7% will actually do something in order to get it. That's how small the number is. Most will not constitute themselves to change. They will not because their life is too comfortable. They're, they're too used to it. They don't want it. They, the last thing they want to believe is that there's actually a problem with themselves. That, that's the, the, well, I can't. You have to change you, man. And you have to reconstitute yourself in every way, in every way. And I'm willing and allowing the Lord to reconstitute me in any way possible because I want everything he has for me. I will not be the same. I fundamentally refuse. I don't care what I have to lose. I don't care what I have to change. I don't care what it costs me. I don't care. I want that. I want what he promises more than I want anything in this world. And I mean, my life demonstrates it. I don't, I don't say that like as a, as a placating statement. I say that in, from the reality that I live from. I live it. And have I seen the power of change? A hundred percent. I'm like, I should have started this 20 years ago. You know why I didn't start it? Because I didn't have anybody teaching it to me. I was subjected to stewards until the time appropriated by the Father. I listened to a bunch of nonsensical people because I was taught, go with the flow. Don't rock the boat, Kevin. Well, you can't challenge these beliefs. Really? I'm not challenging anything. I'm t- the Bible is saying it. It's just, it's just ridiculous. So some of you, you're here, you're getting, you're getting, you're getting a jump start on me because it took me a long time to come to this. And the stuff that God has taught me, he's taught me in relationship, and he's reconstituted my thinking. I had to be willing to allow my thinking to be completely transformed, and I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. Some people, they can't do it. I know Christians, they can't come to this church because it's so far outside of the box for them, not because we're teaching anything wrong or extravagant, but it's outside of the context of religiousness. It's not religious. You're not preaching holiness, Kevin. Where's the holiness? (laughs) I'm like, uh, Holy Spirit is all the holy. I'm not holy. I can't be holy without the Holy Spirit. I was trained. Oh, you got to be holy. If Marjorie was here, I'm going to tell you a testimony. Some of y'all know Marjorie. Anybody know who Marjorie? Ingrid's uh, your cousin, right? Okay, so watch this. Marjorie tells me this story last week, and Sherry's like, that is awesome. So there there was a car accident out in front of her house, right? A guy got hit by a motorcycle. And so she's saying, Pastor, i got to tell you this story. i got to tell you this story. i got to tell you this story. And she goes, somebody got hit with a car car accident out in front of the house. And she goes, you know us Latins, we all run out into the street to see what's going on. So she's like, all the Latins in the neighborhood ran out into the street to see what was going on. And she said, there's a guy laying on the street. The bike's mangled, and he's all twisted up on the ground. And she's like, I'm looking at him. She's like, oh, Lord, what do I do? And she said, in my heart, I heard the Holy Spirit say, you just came from healing classes. You need to go pray for him. And she said, I went and prayed for him, not because of the healing classes. She said, I remembered what you said, that the Holy Spirit is not predicated upon my righteousness. Not predicated upon whether I did something right the night before or I did something wrong. The Holy Spirit will move regardless of my character because I'm a daughter. That's what she told me. She went and prayed over him and she commanded him to wake up and he woke up. She said, all the Latins were, all the Latins were, she said, everybody's yelling at him in Spanish. She's like, they're all going, stop touching him. Stop touching him. And she goes, I'm praying for him, you idiots. That's what she said. And she said he woke up. And she said he got up and he started walking around. We said, we sat him down. And she said, one of the guys that saw it walked up to her and high-fived. And he said, what happened right there was God. So what's the point? Does Jesus get the glory? Yeah. But why did she pray? Because she had a shift in her perspective. She believed God will move irrespectfully of me. He will save by the many or by the few, just like Joshua said. Or excuse me, Jonathan said. It doesn't matter. God will save by the many or by the few. It's irrelevant to him. It's not based on character. Well, if you didn't pray and fast the night before, 
you smoke, drink, or chew. You went to that R-rated movie last night, Kevin. You know, I don't know if the Holy Spirit's going to use you this morning. Are you nuts? But this is, this is the mindset that we teach. And because she had a liberated way of understanding it, she just went for it. Because she knew it's not about me, it's about him. And she commanded. She prayed in command, which is what, again, what we teach. We don't teach you to ask for nothing when it comes to healing. You command what is rightfully yours from the authority that's been given to you by your father. And she said, in Jesus' name, I command you, wake up. And she said he woke up. Happy day, right? (laughs) Come on, that's good stuff. But it's a shifting in the way that you're thinking. I'm not, I'm pathetic, I'm a worm. Oh, poor me, get on your feet. It's like the father, the father said to him, get him up. Get him up. How many of us, when we go to apologize, are we, you know, we're, yeah, let him, leave him there for a while. Just let him there for a while. Yeah. I'm going to give him another 30 minutes of repentance. I don't really feel like I'm seeing any sorrow. We have churches, literally, that will teach people, they're like, you're not sorry enough. You know, you didn't, I saw you weeping at the altar and crying out to God. He doesn't hear you because he doesn't really believe you're sorry. But yet, what, none of that is biblical. But we'll teach it. We'll teach it. And then the poor people become victim. And this is how, it's just, it's a wrong way of teaching. Wrong way of teaching. We come not as pathetic losers. We come as sons and daughters. We stand on our feet. We come before a throne. Yes, we acknowledge our wrong, Lord. But, uh, but Jesus isn't interested in your wrong. He did it on the cross. He's interested in his right. Lord, all my sins I repent for. Anything that he shows you that you need to acknowledge, then acknowledge it. But you come before him, and he glories in the victory. The victory that Christ won is in the glory that you stand before him. You are the joy that's set before him. He's not glorying in your weakness, people. You can glory in your weakness because in your weakness, his strength is perfected, but he's not looking at you that way. The second son received equal inheritance but didn't do anything with it. So you got the first son. He actually asked for it because he believes it's his. His mindset's wrong because he thinks it's all about him. Then you got the second son who got it by default. Dad's like, well, here's, here's his portion, but here's yours too. But he didn't do anything with it. He became jealous and angry of the younger brother. How dare he not be punished? This son of yours, when he has gone off and done his riotous things, comes back and you throw him a party. How dare he not be punished? How could he possibly be accepted again? This is th- these are failures to understand not just identity, but failures to understand the father. Both of these sons did not understand their father. They did not. They didn't. The one saw him as restricting I got to get out of this house because all my father's doing is restricting. He's trying to control my fun. He's trying to keep everything down like that, and, and I, I got to get out of here. So that's where he went. Then the other one's like, he's a rule keeper. The way this is done is through rules, militant keeping of rules, discipline, and holiness is what's required. And in discipline and holiness, we shall fulfill all righteousness. <laughs> that's what happens. With the father, what do we see? We see generation. Generosity, we see restoration, we see love, acceptance, and well-being. And the father's desire was to bring the sons into destiny. Not to take anything from them, but to give everything for them. He wants nothing from you. He wants everything for you. And all that he requires from you actually is for your benefit. When he asks you to worship him, as again, as a complete mind bender. When God is asking you to worship him... It's not that he's in need of worship. Do you honestly believe the one who is surrounded by 10,000 by 10,000 angels who are singing a concert to him by day and by night, and he has the most beautiful, most powerful, and most holy and prolific angels called seraphim bowing at his feet by night and by day, saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then he has another angel that just circles the throne room pronouncing his praise. If you think that one is in need of your pathetic form of worship, you need a head check. What he is asking from you is not for him. First of all, he's worthy of it, so we should give it. The fact that he's even willing to accept it from you should freak you out. Who is a God that would even accept this from me? He's even willing to accept it, but he wants it from you because worship empties you of you. Do you know that? 
So when God says, when God calls us to worship, he, we're emptying ourselves of, of ourselves in order that he can fill us, which is exactly what we need. That's why when you're in a worship environment, you come into a worship environment, you shouldn't be an observer. You should begin to give yourself to the Lord. In the worship environment, in the song, in the prayer, in the everything, you give yourself. And you know what you notice? Power comes back. Power, and it was right back to you because you're emptying yourself of you. So what he's asking of you has nothing to do with him. It has to do with you. When he asks you to give your tithes and offerings, well, God needs money. Comedians make jokes. God's broke. God's broke. has got to always take up a collection. Are you dumb? Are you so, Mark 7, 18, some of you should write it on your mirror. Jesus looked at his disciples who had been following for three years, and he said, are you still so dull? Are you still so dull? You still don't get it? You think he needs your money? He uses it for pavement. So the Lord told me, streets of gold, Kevin. You think I'm in need of money? I paved my streets with it. You walk on concrete. I walk on gold. I don't need money. I want jewels. I snap my finger, and they're all around me. I want crowns. I'm crowned with many crowns. What do you think I need that for? You know why? You give it so that you can participate in the reciprocal cycle that he has created. That's why. You're operating in the system of honor, and you're binding yourself into that. It's a thing that's beyond the natural. It's a supernatural act. And as long as we remain dull, we will never activate it. You'll never activate it. Because we think, well, God's God, and God needs our money. Who told you that? Who, no, seriously, who told you that? Who told you Jesus needs your money? You think he needs your money? He didn't need Esther. He told Esther, for such a time as this, you've been appointed, but if you will not, I'll do it another way. I've brought you this honor, Esther. I've brought you in order to fund my kingdom. I've brought you in order to, to save my kingdom. I've brought you. I'm giving you this honor. But if you refuse it, don't worry. Don't worry. I got plenty of others that I'll go find. I'll go find someone. You'll lose. You and your whole household are going to lose out. But, don't, but God, my, my kingdom, my method, my promo is not dependent upon you. What you're being offered is an honor and a bestowment by a king. And if you're too dull to understand that, then it will go right by you. And we do it all day long. All day long. Too dull to understand what he's offering us. We think he wants something from me. You're, 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 you're warped in your head, dude. You're, you're completely warped in your mind. And you need to, like, just, I don't know what you need to do, but you need to reconstitute the way that you're thinking because your thinking is off. It's completely off. Both sons failed to understand who they were. The younger one failed to understand who he was. The thought that there was meaning and significance or royalty and other things. He thought, I need, what I want in my heart is found elsewhere. How wrong he was, he was done. Here's the older one. This is my favorite. The older ones, even in the church today, we like to do, we do, do the prodigal teaching, talking about the wasteful children, wasteful sons, wasteful sons. We would never do two things. Of course not. You're too proud, too noble, too orderly to access what's yours by right of inheritance. The older son was too proud, too noble, too, ready, dignified, too dignified. <laughs> I'm just going to throw it out there. we got spirit-filled believers. i got guys that come here. They're spirit-filled Christians because they like the feeling of dignity on Sunday morning. Bless God, brother. I like to carry my Bible and wear a suit on Sunday morning. And see, you guys don't wear suits, so I don't come here because there's no suits. I'm like, wear a robe and sandals. Be biblical. You know, forget the suit. Why are you going with business attire? Why don't you go with biblical attire? Get a, get yourself, go down and get yourself a, you know, a Middle Eastern robe. You can get them online, eBay. Get yourself some Birkenstocks and roll into the church Jesus style. Forget carrying a Bible. Roll a scroll over your shoulder. You know what I mean? I mean, we're really going to take it there. Is that where we're going? It's just dignified. Too dignified to recognize what's in front of you. Too dignified to access the inheritance that's, made, that's been given to you. Too noble, too dignified. I, I, I won't speak in tongues. I'm too dignified for that. Oh, I could not possibly ever go to a healing line. I'm too dignified for that. No, not me. I don't need healing. I don't need inner healing. I don't need anything. I'm complete in Christ. Really? Really? Shall we examine your life and see if your life demonstrates the completeness in Christ that you profess? All things are ours, the Bible says. This cosmos, this world, life, present things, things to come, they're all given for us. We were created by him. We were created for him. We were created through him. Everything that is, is created in a, in a cycle of reciprocation. 
Our Father brings us to identity and into an inheritance. Here's my question. We can close right here. Maybe not. Do you want me to keep going? All right. I only need one. So if there's one echo, it's like going to have. There's not that much more, but I got a couple minutes. I actually still got 10 minutes. Seven, technically. <laughs> so which one are you? Are you wasteful? It's not about you. You got to realize this has none, nothing to do with you. I would speak to the religious and say, stop being dutiful, orderly, and religious. Take the red pill, Christian. Go down the rabbit hole. I come from a, I come from a church that is, um, there's two versions. There's cessationists, which believe that all of the miracles have ended. There are no more miracles except salvation. That's the only one. There's no more miracle. The only, oh, so Jesus has gotten rid of all the miracles except salvation. And you know what they'll tell you? Yes. And you know what you ask them? Who told you that? Because it's not in the Bible. Yet that's what they believe. So they create a doctrine to justify their inability to demonstrate power. That's exactly what they've done. They've created a doctrine of men to justify their inability to bring forth the power that is promised. And they build walls around that and build denominations. 70% of all Bible, 75% of all Bible-believing churches believe the miracles are not for today. That's what they're taught in the pulpit from the front. I can tell you churches right now that do entire series. It's like as if, they, as if the people, why the miracles aren't for today. They'll teach a series on that. Really? <laughs> Cessationists. And then we have what we call continuous, that the miracles have continued. I come from a church that was a continuist, but they didn't show any of it. They couldn't demonstrate a miracle if, they, if their life depended on it, but they believed it. They believed it. Nobody knew what they were doing or how to do it. But if you ask them, oh, yeah, absolutely, God's healed. Anybody got healed here? Nope. Nope. Never seen a healing here, but we believe God heals. So was it dependent upon his mood? Is it, is it, you know? We need to know who we are. Jesus reveals the Father. I'm going to give you three quick things. This idea of the Father in the New Testament is a revolutionary concept. They never understood him as Father. They were saying, so they, they come, the disciples come to Jesus. I'm just going to give you three quick points. They come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. So what's happening here is these disciples are observing Jesus' life and they're watching the power and they're watching the influence and they're watching the kingdom and they're thinking to themselves, how is this possible? And then they're going, it must be through prayer. His prayers must be the key to this because we see him praying, he departs, he prays. He's always in this atmosphere, this context of prayer. So it has to be prayer. And Jesus is like, yes, but no. Prayer is the servant of relationship. That's the first line. When Jesus gives the disciples prayer, which isn't really the Lord's prayer, it's, it's the prayer for the disciples, he says relationship is the key. He says our Father. It's the first thing. You want the key to my power? It's in relationship with my Father and your relationship with your Father. That's the key to the whole program. And the first thing when he says our Father, what that tells us, you know what it tells us? When we go to the Lord in prayer, it's not about us, our Father. That's the first thing. It has nothing to do with you. It's about him, what he wants, and who we are in the light of that. Jesus came to teach us that the Father can be known, and he came to show us what the, who and what the Father wants. He tells us in Hebrews to draw near with a sincere heart full of assurance. We come near. Most people don't. Most Christians, I just watched an interview. Anybody know who Keith Green is? The musician Keith Green? Anybody not want to admit who Keith Green is because he's from 1970? He's a worship leader from like, like you're totally dating yourself. I watched an interview with him last night. And it's really interesting um, because he says, I don't use the name of God and I don't use the name of him. I use the name of Jesus because I want everybody to know who God is and I want everybody to know who, who him is. I was like, I do that. And I thought that was kind of cool. I was like, well, he predates me by like a long time. But I thought it was really interesting. And because what most people, when they say God or they say him, they're literally declaring their relationship is at a distance. And the Bible tells us to draw near. God, we're not to know the Lord at a distance. We're to know him up close and personal. And your father can be known, and your father wants to know you, and he promises, say this with me, my father promises to answer me. He promises. Here it is, Matthew 7. Keep on asking, and you will be given. Keep on seeking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened. For anyone who asks receives, and all who seek will find, and everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. What you need to know, if you're going to learn anything, one of the things you're going to learn from me is if you're asking and he's not giving you the answer, you're asking the wrong question. You need to ask the Holy Spirit, what am I asking? What do I need to be asking? What is the question that needs to be asking? God will always answer. He will always speak. 
This idea of asking, seeking, and, find, and knocking is levels of relationship. I don't know if you're aware of that. It's one of the revelations of that prayer. Ask is for your immediate need. Seek is for your future reality. But God wants to grow you to the place where you're pounding on doors of the impossible. It's true. Asking, seeking, and knocking. It's a level. God is saying, if you want to learn something of me, begin to ask in your present reality. That's where most, of, most people camp in there if they're doing anything is they're asking. But God wants you to do more than ask. He wants you to seek Seek for vision, seek for future, seek for destiny. He wants you to seek. Then as you begin to seek, you're going to begin to see the impossible. And then he's like, when you see and know the impossible, I want you to beat on that door. I want you to beat on that door. Because he promises that he's going to answer what you ask. He's going to give you what you're seeking. And he's going to open the door for you. He's going to answer for you. Second thing, he will never give you what will harm you. If there's something in your life that's not good and perfect, say it with me. If it's not good and it's not perfect, it's not from Jesus. People who say God's doing this for me, you know what I ask them? Who told you that? Well, I just feel like it. There's, you, there's no verse that will tell you that, that this is from the Lord. Nothing in the New Testament will constitute the fact that it's from the Lord. Right here, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom is there is no shadow of turning. In other words, he doesn't change. What comes forth from him is good, and what comes forth from him is perfect. If it's not good and perfect, it's from the devil it's from a sin-soaked system, or it's from your poor choices, but it's not from him. It's from broken people, broken systems, bad devil, or your poor choices. That's why you're getting that. But God's not doing it to you. The Bible says, by a man's own decisions, his life comes into calamity, but his heart rages against the Lord. By his own stupidity, he creates his circumstances, and then he blames God for his circumstances. <laughs> How sick we are. We are so messed up. He promises to give good gifts to those who ask. Did you know that? If you then, being sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will he give good gifts to those who ask? So I don't have any good gifts. Have you asked? James says you don't have because you don't ask. Are you asking? Are you asking? I'm not worthy to ask God. Who told you that? Who told you you weren't worthy? Who told you? Who told you you couldn't ask him? Who told you he's displeased with you? Who told you that? He's never displeased with you. All who come to me, I will no way cast out. Jesus is always glad to see you. Always. Even messed up. Even messed up. He doesn't see you for what you do. He sees you for who you are. He's always glad to see you. And he's always in a good mood. He's always happy to see you. And you need to change your perspective. And you need to change and say, Lord, you are always glad to see me. You don't believe me? Get into, a worship, get into worship. And if you think that God's love or his spirit is predicated upon you, you can have a shot-out week and you come into a worship experience and the love of God falls all over you. All over you. For no particular reason. I learned this when I was in Germany. <laughs> I was taught, well, you got to do everything right. You got to make sure you got all your boxes checked. Once you got all your boxes checked, and if God's not answering you, it's because you left a box unchecked, Kevin. This is how I was taught. This is how most Christians are taught. And I'm in Germany with my wife, completely alienated from every, all of that, doing certain things, loving Jesus, but not wanting the religion that I come out of. And God's blessing me enormously. And I'm walking through the beer garden. Huh? Try that one on. <laughs> all you holiness people, the pastor was praying in the beer garden. And Jesus answered me in the beer garden. <gasps> That wasn't the Lord. Really? I thought it was. I know it was. And so I'm in there, and I'm walking through the beer garden, and I'm going through there, and I'm praying, and I'm asking the Lord. I'm like, why are you blessing me? I'm not doing anything that I'm supposed to be doing. I, wasn't doing, I was doing some things, but I didn't check all my boxes. All my boxes weren't checked, right? And I knew it. And the Lord was being so good to me, like extravagantly good to me. But you know why? Because he was teaching me about his goodness, that I'm good to you in spite of you, dude. In spite of you. It's not based on you. I'll be good to you every single time. You know what's amazing about this father? This is what's amazing to me. Like, if you look at the story, this father literally gave everything he had to his two sons, and there was always more. Did you know that? Everything he had, he gave away, and when the son came back, he had plenty. There's plenty left over. God's kingdom is a perpetuating kingdom. Everything he gives, it just keeps coming back, coming back, coming back. We think heaven's broke. Who told you that? I don't want to spend my inheritance. I might spend it all. Who told you that? 
You know what happens when you spend your inheritance? When you learn your inheritance and you spend it, your bank account increases. Your capacity increases. That's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. As you grow in the Holy Spirit, God increases your capacity in the Spirit. He increases your capacity to see and understand. All by rightful use. As you use what he gives you, this, this, this kingdom is not a diminishing kingdom. It is a forever expanding kingdom. There's no decrease, only increase. That's why we don't think from heaven. We think from heaven to earth. Heaven is not deficiency. Heaven is sufficiency. We, when we think from the earth, we think from limitations. God, there's never a limitation with the Lord. He, he doesn't understand limitations. We always think in terms of, of limitations. He does not think that way. We think in terms of impossibilities. He thinks in terms of possibilities. And it's funny. What happens is when you begin to believe God for the impossible, he's like, right on. Let's do this. He begins to orchestrate time and space and begins to order the events that are necessary in order for the impossible to become possible. That's what he does. That's why God works. He wants to believe the impossible because when we believe God for the impossible, how many of you have ever seen something that was impossible? Ever believe God for something that there was like no way? It's going to happen. It happened in the process of time. He'll answer you. What do you need to ask him for? What do you need? Good gifts, spiritual gifts, Christian. Gifts, the, the word gifts is charismata, which is spiritual power. Same thing. The movement of charis, which is the root of grace, which is also the root of the gifts. Spiritual power moving in love. God will give good gifts. He gives you supernatural abilities. Supernatural wisdom, supernatural provision, supernatural favor, supernatural administration. Gives you wisdom, gives you courage, gives you understanding, gives you spiritual power, spiritual giftedness, healing, wholeness, prophetic counsel, might, provision, sustenance. What do you need that you're not asking him for? I just shared your story, Marjorie, your motorcycle story. So. Are you willing to ask, and are you willing to keep on asking? Say this with me. I was made by him. Come on. You were, I would say it. Say it with authority. I was made by him. I was made for him. I was made for his purposes. I was made to know him and to experience his goodness forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Yes, you need to believe that. Let me pray for you. Father, we just thank you so much. We honor you. We honor you on this day, God. We honor you for your goodness, for your kindness, for your favor, for your love towards us. God, I just release it over your people this morning, Lord, that we would know you more. We wouldn't look for our, our things like the prodigal son who just went out. He thinks, man, i got to find it somewhere else, Lord. And he just began to race to find things outside of the relationship with you. It's all found in you. And, Lord, we wouldn't be like the, the dutiful, uh, uh, just dignified son who just refuses to become anything other than what is respectable to men. Lord, we would be willing to lose ourselves in order to find it. We'd be willing to lay down our processes, our thinking, in order to discover what's really true. So, Lord, I just release that out over your people. I would just release your spirit, and we honor you. And I just bless them this day. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, we have a prayer team.